Oh, hail the power of Jesus' name. David Taylor gave us Psalm 44 today. The God of glory cast out seven nations out of the land of Canaan, greater and mightier than the nation of Israel. They had built the infrastructure of their cities. They had dug the wells. They had planted the vineyards. They had built the city walls. They had built the houses and furnished them. The two million people of Israel that came out of Egypt were abject slaves with nothing. They took over all those cities. They're named in the book of Joshua. They sat in their lazy boys. They slept in their beds. They drank from their wells. They drank and ate from their vineyards. They enjoyed the protection of city walls. God threw out seven nations and put in the people of God. I forgot. Why? Because He had a favor to them? Is that what you told us this morning? I didn't really forget. And I hope that you haven't forgotten. It says in Psalm 44, because He had a favor to them. God's favored us today by putting us in this place for a few more minutes to remember His Son, Jesus Christ. It's a favor. We're about to see it. We're about to see it in two more lessons in John chapter 2. The next lesson is Jesus playing with men by a use of words to confuse them because they didn't deserve the truth. And then a warning that not all who believe are true believers, are truly saved. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 2. I commend you, everyone that is here, for coming on this holiday weekend. I commend you in Jesus' name. I'm nothing. I would preach if it was one. But I commend you. We should be consumed with His house. The last thing we should think about is skipping an assembly. We should be filled with zeal toward it, as Jesus was, as David was, as Paul was, as the household of Stephanus was. In verses 1-11 through 11 of John 2, Jesus displayed His glory to His disciples and they believed on Him. Further, they already were believers, His disciples, by turning the water into wine. Through verse 11. In verse 12, we had the sober warning about Capernaum. And we don't want to be like the citizens of Capernaum who had the gracious blessing of the Lord's visit and they did not repent and change their lives. In verse 13 through 17, Jesus observed the Passover in Jerusalem as He had many times before and He cleansed the temple, the house of God, from the merchandisers and thieves that were there. There were two things by comparing all four passages that bothered the Lord the most. That they were doing something as foolish as selling in a house of prayer. He wanted the place to have a spiritual value and to get bleeding 
animals, defecating animals, out of it. It was a mess. And second, they were thieves. They were covetous. And he called them so in the second cleansing. But now we come to verses 18 through 22 as the next lesson. The Jews watch Jesus come into the temple and raise a ruckus. There would have been a stampede. The noise would have been a crescendo of confusion as he drove out flocks of sheep, herds herds of animals, oxen, and doves, and birds, and whatever else they had there, and tipping over tables, and chasing out the men, and driving them out. Beautiful scene. I hope you love it. It's the Word of God. If you don't like that Jesus, you don't like the Jesus of the Bible. If you don't let that Jesus alter your lifestyle, you're not a real believer. Lord, change us. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. I read verses 18 through 22. Hopefully, distinctly. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. This is our lesson for the moment in these verses. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, Of course, when a religious person does something out of the ordinary, they are going to be questioned by other religious people, and they're going to be attacked. John had to endure this. Remember John the Baptist? In John chapter 1, verses 19 through 28, questioned by the Jews, Who are you? Who are you? Are you Elias? Are you that prophet? Are you the Christ? Questioning. You're going to be questioned if you do things the Bible way. David read a verse this morning from 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, and I hope that you'll remember it, because it's a description of the perilous times that we live in. All that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. David wanted you to note, all does not mean some. All that live godly in Christ Jesus shall, not might, but shall suffer persecution. Jesus, cleansing the temple of God, gets questioned. Do you know what he should have gotten? A standing ovation and a huge bonus. But no, he's going to be questioned by the Jews. 
because he didn't have a ministerial certificate that they might have given him. He wasn't a member of the ministerial association of the Jewish religious leaders. He was from the fishing communities around the Sea of Galilee. He was a nobody. Who gave him authority to do things like that? Show us a sign that you're somebody. They should have already felt the power of God in the whole crowd being moved out by one man. I was asked at break time, how did Jesus move so many so easily by himself? Well, remember the power of God was with him. When he was in Nazareth and he preached a sermon about election in Luke chapter 4, using two examples of election that offended the people in his hometown, they led him to the brow of a hill to cast him off it and kill him. But he walked through the midst of them because they couldn't touch him because the power of God was with him and it wasn't his time yet. When he was in the garden of Gethsemane, the angry mob came toward him and he said, who are you looking for? They said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am he. They all fell backward to the ground. So that's he was able to handle it easily. And those apostles got one of their first lessons about the Lord that they were going to serve. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? What sign showest thou? That's what a Jew was supposed to ask. In one respect, it was a legitimate and scriptural question from them. The book of Deuteronomy, chapter 18 and verse 22, told the nation of Israel that when they met a prophet, if he fulfilled all the signs that he gave, the prophecies that he gave, they should believe him. But if even one prophecy was not fulfilled, they should not fear that prophet, nor should they think that he had come from God. And so it was appropriate to ask. In another respect, it was rather weak and vulnerable to deception to ask for a miracle, because miracles can be very deceiving. So that in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, it told the nation of Israel, if a false prophet comes along and is preaching something contrary to Moses, yet he's able to perform miracles, don't believe those miracles. God will sometimes give an enemy the power of doing miracles in order to test his people. Judas Iscariot could perform miracles as well or better than Peter, James, and John. Because when told at the table of the Last Supper that one of them was going to betray him, Peter, James, and John said, Is it I? They didn't say, Aha, it's got to be Judas. Because Judas was too effective of a preacher and too effective as a miracle worker. They never suspected Judas. So they're asking for a miracle. If you think that these poor Jews hadn't seen enough miracles, they say the same thing much later after thousands and thousands of miracles. They asked for a sign in Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 40, and Jesus said, there's no sign going to be given to this adulterous generation. This is how Jesus preached, by the way. I'm sorry that it's so different from Joel. You know I'm not very sorry. No sign is going to be given to this adulterous generation except this sign. 
the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth, like Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale. When a man can forecast his death and his resurrection and the time between the two, that is a sign. Now he gave that sign there, and he's going to give that sign here, but then they had seen thousands of miracles. So it's not a lack of miracles. It's a lack of faith. These were not believers. These were reprobate enemies of Jesus Christ. And they didn't like the fact that all those people that had been in there with their changing money changing tables and all their animals, they had certificates to be there. They had building permits. They had trading permits. They had table permits by the government of the temple. And Jesus was in there disrupting their game. And if you disrupt someone else in their faith and their game of some of the things they do in the name of religion, some of the things that we do differently in our church. You know, when you mention it to others who have followed the changes being made in so many churches over the last 150 years, they call us nuts. They say that we're crazy. But they're the ones that changed. Like our lack of musical instruments. 150 years ago, there wasn't a Baptist church in the world with a musical instrument in it. They changed. We didn't. But they'll call us nuts. We're just following the Bible. It says sing. All our fathers sang. The only authority we need to do what we do is thus saith the Lord. God had called the Lord Jesus Christ and sent Him as His Son. And He went into that temple as the Son of God and purged it just the way He should have. Let us bless the Lord and thank Him. And Lord, we bless and thank Thee right now for saving us from denominationalism and associationalism. If we were part of a religious denomination, we would have to submit to what that denomination tells us to do, believe, and practice. We're not. So we can do whatever the Bible tells us to do. It is the blessing of being free as a church. There is no higher organization in the Bible than the local church. There is no higher structure. There is no bishop's territory like in the Catholic Church. Take any denomination that you want, whether you think of the Southern Baptist Convention or any other group that exerts authority on the local church, that is not scriptural. An individual local church with its pastor, with the Word of God, has all that it needs because the Bible says... All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. That's all we need. How many churches have been destroyed by that thumb over them from some organization higher than the local church? When the Lord shows us something that we need to change on, we're going to change. Be expecting something on Wednesday evening. But you've already heard about it. And so that you won't be worried, I'm probably going to share more with you about our policy on the baptism of children. Or our policy against the baptism of children. And I don't mean infants. I mean infantile baptism as it's practiced by so many Baptists today. And there may be more coming. The Lord's gracious to us. And He shows us things that we should change to match His Word more perfectly. We've done it in the past. We'll do it in the future. 
We can make any alteration to our doctrine and practice as the Lord shows us. There isn't safety in size. If safety's in size, then Rome is right. Anyone want to raise your hand and say Rome is right? There isn't safety in size. There's safety in the Word of God. And not changing unless the Lord shows us a tsunami of evidence which can come in a variety of ways. They said, by what authority are you doing this? Show us a sign since you're in here disrupting our game. Not quite in those words. Jesus said in verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Where was Jesus when the Jews asked the question? In the temple. Where was Jesus when he answered the question? In the temple. What would they easily conclude by his use of the word temple? Destroy this temple. When you use that demonstrative adjective this, destroy this temple, when he's standing in a temple, what temple would they automatically assume was the one under consideration? The building they were standing in. Did he want them to fall for that? Yes. Did he mean the building he was standing in? No. He meant his body. Why would Jesus mislead religious people asking him a question? Because God is the author of confusion against anyone that doesn't want to do things his way. He started with the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. The Word was, the Word of God to those people was, multiply and replenish the earth and be scattered abroad. They didn't do that. They wanted to live in one place and build themselves a tower and have their united nations, except they weren't nations yet. They wanted to be united, and He confounded them by giving them different languages and ended that temple, that building tower project. And throughout the Bible, God confuses those who do not come to the truth with the right spirit. The Jews did not have the right spirit. So in Matthew chapter 13, when Jesus continued to teach in parables, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Why are you preaching in parables? Don't you know the people can't understand you? He said, Yes. They're not supposed to understand me. I'm speaking in parables, so they won't understand me. Look at Matthew chapter 13. This, This point is throughout the Bible. It's not once. It's not twice. It's not ten times. It's not twenty times. It's not a hundred times. If you mess with the truth that God offers to you, He will take away your understanding of that truth. He will confound you. It is a lengthy document on our website entitled, Is God the Author of Confusion? What is the answer to that question? Yes and no. And amen. Is God the author of confusion in His assemblies? No. Because Paul said that in 1 Corinthians 14, he didn't want a bunch of people jumping up, running around, speaking in foreign languages, because God is not the author of confusion in His church assemblies. 
but in the hearts of men all the time. For instance, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion. Listen to these words. God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned, who receive not the love of the truth. That is 2 Thessalonians 2, 9-12, through and it is talking about Roman Catholics. It is talking about those that follow the man of sin. All our fathers in the faith believed that that passage was talking about the popes of Rome when it described the man of sin sitting in the temple of God, pretending that he is God. That's the description of the man of sin. We have one. His name is Pope Frank. He was Pope Benedict XVI before that. He was Pope John Paul II before that. But that's irrelevant and I'm getting off track and I'm sorry. But we're in Matthew 13, verse 10. And the disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? Do you know what a parable is? It's a riddle. It's a story. It's an obscure story. It needs explanation. It's hard to understand. It's like a proverb. Later in John, we're going to run into it about two or three times later in the Gospel of John. The disciples are going to ask Jesus, would you please speak plainly to us and not use parables? Then Jesus will say something plainly and they'll thank Him. Thank you for speaking plainly and not using parables because parables are difficult to understand. And that should be obvious from the question by the disciples in Matthew 13.10. The disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? He answered and said unto them, Here's why Jesus spoke in parables. Do you know what you learned in Sunday school? Do you know what you were taught about parables in Sunday school? A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning that was easy for the common people to understand. I remember Some sweet lady, they were. Sunday school teachers were wonderful. They weren't doing the right thing, but they were wonderful, and we'll leave it there. An earthly story with a heavenly meaning, easy for the common people to understand. Is that what a parable is? Absolutely not. A parable is an obscure riddle that you need to figure out in order to for to understand, I could I could read you some parables right now that Jesus Christ preached that you'd be totally confounded by what in the world he meant. These poor Jews certainly didn't understand when he used a very simple one: destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up again. So here we have parables are not easy to understand; they're hard to understand. That's why the disciples were asking about them, Lord, Lord. You're going to lose this crowd if you keep preaching in parables. They don't know what you're talking about. Verse 11. Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. Notice. He makes a choice between who gets the truth and who doesn't. Verse 12. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given. And he shall have more abundance. You disciples, I'm pouring out the truth to you. I'm going to explain these parables to you later in Matthew 13. And you're going to have truth in abundance. But whosoever hath not, these unbelievers that are here that don't really care, from him shall be taken away even that he hath. That's what he thinks he has. Therefore speak I to them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, 
which is Isaiah, which saith, By hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see, and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is wax gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed. Lest at any time they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. I'm speaking in parables so that they can't be saved, so that they can't be healed, so that they can't understand. You can read it here, you can read it in the other Gospels. But, blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For verily I say unto you that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which ye see, and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear, and have not heard them. To hear the gospel truth about Jesus Christ is an incredible blessing. Countless billions in the history of the world have not even known the name of Jesus Christ, let alone the true doctrine of Jesus Christ. It is by the mercy of God that we have heard the truth. And we better be thankful for it, or He'll confuse us with statements like this in the Word of God. All Schofieldites, dispensationalists, are confused because they take everything literally. These men took the words of Jesus literally instead of metaphorically, instead of spiritually about His physical body and applied it to that temple. Dispensationalists are still waiting for the Jews to retake the Holy Land. The Jews retook the Holy Land by the decree of Cyrus 2,500 years ago. Even Abraham understood what land the Jews were looking for, and it's heaven. He didn't want anything down here. This place stinks compared to heaven. Even the best part of it. Turn back a page to Matthew 11. Let's remind ourselves, if we don't have the right attitude toward truth, God will blind us. God will blind our church. God will blind your pastor. We gotta, we have to thank him at all times. Jacob thanked him in Genesis chapter 32 and verse 10. I am not worthy of all the mercies and of all the truth that you have shown unto me. Jacob's prayer. And Jacob didn't know half of what even our children know. Matthew 11 verse 25. At that time, Do you remember where we are? Look at Matthew 11. Do you see verse 23? Were we there earlier today? Thou Capernaum, you're going down to hell. It's going to be more tolerable for Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. Verse 25, at that time, Jesus at that time, noticing the difference of some cities where he spent his time, they did not repent And yet he knew that Sodom and Gomorrah would have repented with signs like he showed in Capernaum. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Does God hide truth? Absolutely, the verse says so. Jesus is in prayer to his Father. Jesus is thanking God his Father for hiding the truth. Does God reveal truth? Yes. Jesus is in prayer thanking God for revealing truth. Who gets the truth? Babes. Do you know what a babe is? Lord, I'm a foolish idiot. If it weren't for your saving grace, I'd be out there dead somewhere by now. It is all by your grace. I don't know anything. 
I have a degree in finance. I have experience in a bank. Will you show me something from your word? Solomon. Solomon, the prized child of David and Bathsheba. The Lord appears to him in a vision when he's a young king. What would you like for me to do for you? I am but a little child. What's a little child? A babe. I am but a little child. I don't know how to go out or to come in. Yes, I was raised the son of a king. Yes, David loved me more than all of his other sons. Yes, Bathsheba loved me and I was tender and only beloved in the sight of my mother. But I need help. This is a great people because it's your church. I don't know how to go out or to come in before them. Give me a wise and understanding heart so that I can lead this nation the way you want me to. You have asked a good thing. Because you did not ask for riches, I'll give them to you anyway. Because you didn't ask for the necks of your enemies, I'll give them to you anyway. Your reign will be in peace. And I'll give you a long life. And you'll be the wisest man that ever lived. Does that promise... Is that promise held out to us? Is that offer held out to us? James 1 and verse 5. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. How's that? (sighs) I, I tremble before this Bible to rightly divide its verses. It's all by God's grace. Why does God make a difference among men? None of us deserve the truth. Not a single man in the history of the world has ever deserved the truth. Do you know why? Because in the Garden of Eden, we chose a lie. God gave us the truth and the tree of life. The devil gave us the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and death, the lie. God said, thou shalt surely die. Satan said, thou shalt not surely die. We took the revised version, followed Satan. Well, it was a revised version. It added, it added one word to the Word of God. Or it took, thou shalt surely die, thou shalt not surely die. We chose a lie, and since then we do not have a right to truth. Truth is not a right. Truth is a privilege, and Jesus understood that, didn't he? He thanked, I thank thee, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because this is where the sovereign government of God comes into play. When he reveals truth to some and hides it from others. Even, why does he do it? Look at verse 26. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. It's good in the sight of God. For you to be sitting here today and to love the word of God, is by His grace. It, would, it seemed good in His sight to take us babes and put us together. And don't any of us ever get haughty. We are nothing. With one little word from Him to blind us just a little tiny bit, we could believe or teach anything. Heavenly Father, have mercy upon us. And save us by Your grace and continue to open Your Word to us. Did you hear us earlier when our brother Adam prayed, O Lord, that we would not just celebrate the Bible, 
but that we would obey the Bible. Help us, Heavenly Father. We thank you for John chapter 2. Show us some more things before we go home. Back to John chapter 2. Truth is not a right. Truth is a privilege and a blessing. They asked him, you're not part of the ministerial association. What are you doing in here changing temple practice? Show us a sign. He said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He was standing in this great big complex of buildings that could hold tens of thousands of people at a time. Herod had greatly enhanced it. It's well documented. It was the most beautiful building in the world at the time. Of course, there's nothing left. But the descriptions are incredible. 46 years are going to be admitted right here. Herod had 18,000 men on the project. He had started in 19 B.C. It continued until 64 A.D., six years before it was leveled to the ground by the Romans. And I want you to understand something about that and remember it always about the power of Jesus' name. Those Jews rejected Jesus Christ. He said this temple will be torn to the ground and there won't be two stones attached to each other. Those Romans had an order by Titus to leave that beautiful building of the temple. But they were so angry at the Jews by the time they breached its walls, they burned the thing to the ground, and because the gold was melting in between the stones, they pried every stone apart so there weren't two stones detached together. And we're talking about stones that weighed 10 and 20 tons. They tore them apart. And when Titus left to take his 97,000 prisoners, some of which, most of which were sent to the salt mines of Egypt, and the rest were drugged through the streets of Rome, he left Terentius Rufus in charge of the 12th legion, and he, he tore up the foundations of the temple and drew a plow. He, do you know what a plow is? It is a blade down in the ground. He plowed Mount Zion. Your house is left unto you desolate. And no one is taught what happened in 70 A.D. We should, we should be consumed with this little house. God can breathe, blow against us. And our children will blow out of here left and right and do all kinds of crazy things. And this church will take on false doctrines and practices if we do not humble ourselves and thank God for the truth that He's shown us and obey the truth that He's shown us and ask Him for more. We'll hear things like this. Destroy this temple and we'll think, oh, that means the building. C.I. Schofield, the number one rule for premillennialists in interpreting the Bible is to take prophecies literally. But the Bible says, my prophets spoke in similitudes. Prophecies in the Bible are in sign language. But these premillennialists, these dispensationalists, these futurists, these Hal Lindsey types, these left-behind types, they take the Bible literally when it's supposed to be understood prophetically with figurative language. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. They jump to the, the automatic conclusion that he was talking about the building. So they responded this way. Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? Remember, this is 27 A.D., 19 B.C., when Herod started. 46 years. 16 years before Jesus was born. 46 years. 18,000 men. 
Because he was trying to buy the Jewish people because he was a descendant of Esau. And it, it was their king. Herod the king. The king of Daniel chapter 11 and verse 36. But he spake of the temple of his body. Verse 21. I don't have time to tell you about this fantastic building project. And it's not important anyway. Uh, I've told you enough about it. But he spake of the temple of his body. Jesus meant destroy this body. Leave me in the ground for three days and three nights and I'll come up. Is that a good enough sign for you Jews? But see, he didn't explain it to them that way. And even the apostles didn't understand it until when? When Jesus rose from the dead. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he met with his apostles and he breathed on them. And he said, receive ye the Holy Ghost. How much did they remember then? Everything. Wait till we get to later in John, where John said, I'm going to send the Comforter, and the Comforter is going to bring everything to your remembrance that I have spoken to you. Do you know what that would have been like? When the apostles got the Holy Ghost, and they were all of a sudden, they were remembering everything. Do you know how, do you know how confident they'd have been in their gospel? Because he'd have brought to their memories everything that he said, and now they saw the fulfillment of each one of those prophecies. Those apostles went and turned the world upside down. That's the terminology of the enemies of the gospel. They said the world was turned upside down by one man named Paul. But he spake of the temple of his body. And we know how that turned out, don't we? Why did Jesus use such obscure language when he could have stated it that he was talking about his body? Because they didn't deserve the truth. And he reserved it for those that did deserve the truth. Who were the ones that reserved the truth? Were they seminary graduates? They were fishermen from the Sea of Galilee. Peter, James, John, Andrew. Four fishermen partners from the Sea of Galilee. You should give thanks to God for every bit of truth you know and love. Do you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? Which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20. What sin is under consideration in 1 Corinthians 6? That we should always remember that the Holy Spirit is inside us. Fornication. Because you're the Lord's. Your body is the Lord's. The Holy Spirit is inside you. And to join yourself with a harlot where two shall become one flesh, you make the Holy Spirit and you make a member of Jesus Christ get joined to a harlot, a prostitute, a fornicator. Hate fornication. It says so. Hate fornication because it ties a body together with an unbeliever or two unbelievers. And if believers do it, they should repent. Was there any Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ? When he said that his body was a temple, was it a decent temple? How much of the Godhood did he have, Godhead did he have in him? The fullness of the Godhead bodily. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9. How much of the Holy Spirit... Those are the words I wanted. They're music to my ears. Without measure. Did he have a real temple? Yes, it was. That was a temple. But ours are as well. And we should remember that. Verse 22, When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said, because... There are scriptural prophecies in the Old Testament of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, like Psalm 16.10, 
which they didn't understand yet, but they sure did understand by the time we get to Acts chapter 2, because when Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and unloaded his first sermon, he used Psalm 6. Did I say Acts 16.10? He used Psalm 16.10 in his sermon. What does Psalm 16.10 say? Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, nor let my suffer thy holy one to see corruption. I will not corrupt in the grave. I will be coming out of it. There's a resurrection right there in Psalm 16. And Peter, you know, timid Peter, that just 50 days earlier, Pentecost means 50 days after Passover, Penta, 50, 50 days earlier had denied Jesus Christ to a little maid at the fire uh, at the high priest's hall. Now Peter is unloading on the Jews about Jesus of Nazareth and God had raised him from the dead. So it says, John is explaining things to us, even though we're very early in the ministry of Jesus Christ and the disciples weren't even apostles yet and they did not understand these statements of Jesus. After Jesus rose from the dead and God filled them with the Holy Ghost, they understood all this. They had an arsenal of information and an arsenal of doctrinal proof from the Old Testament scriptures and from Jesus' own words to go and preach the gospel boldly. Did, did Peter look like he was wanting for words in Acts chapter 2 when he unloaded? That is one of the greatest sermons in the Bible. He was fantastic. And he was caught cold. But he wasn't very cold with that tongue of fire on top of his head. He was full of the Holy Spirit. His invitation at the end of that thing is powerful. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified both Lord and Christ. Men and brethren, what shall we do? 3,000 men, what shall we do? Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. With many other words, do you testify and exhort, saying, save yourselves from this untoward generation. With many other words, that sermon went on much longer than what we have recorded. And what were the other words for? God and Jesus are going to tear up this city and destroy it with this generation that killed the Son of God, and you better repent and get out of town. Because that's what Jesus had said. Verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, this is the same Passover, it's just going to a different lesson to pick up. You understand the, the, the relationship here, I hope. It should be simple. Verses 13 through 17, he went to the Passover in Jerusalem, and he cleansed the temple while he was there at that Passover. Because he cleansed the temple in verses 13 through 17, they came and questioned him in verses 18 through 22. He answered their questions all at the Passover. But another event happens while he's at the Passover. It's in verses 23 through 25. And we'll spend more time on this later, but I'll just introduce it and we'll end. Verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, another event, same Passover. It's a seven-day feast. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man for he knew what was in man. It said they believed on him. Many believed in His name. Believing on Jesus Christ requires more than mental assent to the facts of the Gospel. 
The devils believe the facts of the gospel. When a devil-possessed man would meet Jesus Christ on earth, he would fall down and worship Jesus and say, We know who thou art. Thou art the Holy One of God. In Acts chapter 19, a devil-possessed man said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? In James chapter 2 and verse 19, the devils believe and tremble. Reach deeper, folks. It's not just some little decision. That idea of decisional regeneration and decisional salvation is an invention. It's only 200 years old. Nowhere in the Bible does it talk about making some little decision for Jesus and on that basis believing you're saved. In the Bible, the emphasis is on the good works that follow real faith. Real faith results in a changed life. Dig deeper. Lay hold of eternal life. You can build up a good foundation against the time to come by your good works in obedience to the New Testament Scriptures. Your good works can't save you. Only the cross of Christ can save. Only Jesus on the cross. But it is no decision that gets you regenerated. God regenerates you as we're going to learn in chapter 3, the first eight verses. And our proof of regeneration is a changed life. This is not unusual in the Gospel of John. Those people that want to rush us to John 3.16, why don't they look at verses 23-25 through and then go into their churches and tell them that many of the people in there that supposedly believe on Jesus are not really saved? Because that's in chapter 2 and it comes before John 3.16. Let me read the words again. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them, because he knew all men, and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. And he heads back to Galilee as we go forward. He's going to go through Samaria back to Galilee. He's, he's going to leave them, because they weren't really saved. His life was in danger. They didn't really love him. Right. Sure. Hey, and he, look at those miracles that he's doing. Look at all the people he's healing. He must be the Messiah. I wonder what we're going to get out of it. I wonder if he's going to deliver us from Rome. I wonder if I'll get my taxes reduced. I wonder if I'm going to get a free lunch. Now laugh at me. John chapter 6, he fed the 5,000. The 5,000 came and tried to force him to become their king so they could get a free lunch every day. People want a free lunch. They don't want to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and change their lives. Hear me. I don't want you to go out of here today just believing with mental assent. I want you to go out of here today loving the Lord Jesus Christ, wanting to live for the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that He's coming for you, and, and adding to your faith. Oh, Lord, please have... That's because of the clock. I'm not angry at anybody. Look at Second Peter. Second Peter. There's so many verses we can look to. Wait till I show you John 6. But, but we're turning to Second Peter chapter 1. John 6 says that they believed on him and wanted to make him a king. And he poked them with his doctrine of eating and eating his flesh and drinking his blood until he drove them all away. He drove the whole crowd away. And he, he knew that it was a hard saying. The disciples came and said, don't you know that that was a hard saying? <laughs> yeah, you want to hear another one? And he did. He gave him another one. 
But that's in John 6. John 7, same thing. John 8, same thing. It says that men believed on Him in John 8. He said to those men that believed on Him, If you'll continue in My Word, then ye are My disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They said, We're free already. We haven't been in bondage to any man. Fifteen verses later, they want to kill Him, and He says, You are the children of the devil. But they believed on Him in verse 30. But in verse 44, they are of their the devil their father. We do not want to be content with just making some decision for Jesus that is not taught in the Bible. Why did Paul know that there was a crown of life waiting for him when he met Jesus? He said, there's a crown of life waiting for me. Do you know what he, what he based it on? Because I made a decision on the road to Damascus? No. Because I made a decision in the house of Ananias before he baptized me? No. On what basis did Paul know that there was a crown of life waiting for him when he met Jesus Christ after death? I fought a good fight. I kept the faith. I finished my course. Okay, Second Peter. You want to know if you're saved? Second Peter chapter 1, verse 5. And beside this, giving all diligence. How much diligence should you give to this matter? All diligence. Is your eternal life important? Then how much effort should you put forth? All Beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. Yes, we start by believing. We believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God, the Christ of Israel, and the fulfillment of all the prophecies. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose the third day according to the Scriptures, ascended up into heaven, and sits at God's right hand. He's coming to judge the world. Yeah, we should believe that. That's a good start. But it's not enough. Lots of people can believe that and mentally assent to that, and they're not really saved. Because it's got to change their lives this way. Add to your faith virtue. You better be living a virtuous life. And to virtue, knowledge. You better be growing in the knowledge of the will of God. And to knowledge, temperance. You better be disciplining yourself to practice the will of God that you learned under knowledge and virtue. And to temperance, patience. You better cheerfully endure negative events because that's what patience is. Because you love God, who cares what happens to you in this world? Because you've got the patience of God which is cheerfully enduring negative events and add to that godliness. You should be living a godly life. And to godliness, you should add brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, you should add charity. The top two stones, the greatest evidence of eternal life in a person is loving the brethren. God has put together a mass of people in here. We are all mongrels from all over the place, all different kinds of backgrounds. But it's the love of the brethren. There's the top two stones of these eight stones that prove eternal life. Look at this. Verse 10. Wherefore the rather, brethren. Don't be fruitless is what he, why he says wherefore the rather. Instead of being fruitless, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. If ye do these things, this is the word of God. We emphasize the sovereignty of God and God's electing grace so much. We emphasize Christ's death on the cross so much. But at the same time, the Bible emphasizes that we better have a changed life with good works or we have no claim to the Christ of that cross. If He do these things, don't you love those evangelists? There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do to get born again. I'll agree. There's nothing you can do to have your sins washed away by Christ's blood. I'll agree. But there certainly is something you can do to make sure that you're saved and going to heaven when you die. If you do these things, ye shall never fall. Well, what will happen to you if you're not going to fall? 
It's in the next verse. For so an entrance. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The angels will fling open the gates of heaven and the entrance will be abundant, glorious, spectacular, without fear as you are embraced by the heavenly messengers to open heaven's gate for you. How do I know that that's going to happen? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ right now and let that change your life. Whatever you need to get out of your life in the way of sin, throw it out of your life. Whatever you need to repent of, repent of it. Choose to be virtuous. Let everything that comes out of your mouth be kind, gracious, gentle toward everyone. Do these eight things and ye shall never fall. He was at the Passover. He started healing this man, healing that man. And people said, that must be the Messiah. Look at the power he's got. Wow. Hey, dude, look at these miracles over here. But Jesus didn't commit himself to them because he knew what was in man. You know what? He knows you and me. Oh, Lord, he knows us. Did he know the church at Ephesus so well that he knew they had lost their first love? Does he know the difference in the human heart of first love, second love, sliding love, little love? Does he know all that? Then where should you be right now? What should you be repenting for and seeking? First love. Did he look at the church at Laodicea and does, is Jesus Christ able to distinguish between hot and cold and the gray area in between called lukewarm? Did he, could he see that, sense that, know that, perfectly perceive it? He knows when someone's cold and they're just believing because they saw some miracles and hey, hey dude, the Messiah's here. And he knows those that repent and truly love Him and change their lives. Real discipleship. The whole gospel is about real discipleship. When the multitudes were following Jesus, He said, if any man comes after me and doesn't forsake or hate, He used both words, His wife, children, parents, brothers, sisters, houses, lands, yea, in His own life also, can't be my disciple. Can't be my disciple. Those men in Jerusalem in the feast day, they weren't his disciples. They weren't willing to give up anything. But one of them looked him up that night. It'll be John chapter 3. There was a ruler of the Jews. Nicodemus. Did Jesus commit himself to him? Aha. Uh-huh. You ought to read the precious truth laid on that man's ears by Jesus in John chapter 3. The Lord's laid some precious truth on our ears. Are you going to be consumed with this house? Are you going to see that you're adding to your faith the other thing, seven things listed in 2 Peter chapter 1? There are verses in the Bible that tell us how we can know that we shall never fall. I exhort you in the name of Jesus Christ to believe on Him and to walk out of here and let's live for Him. Right. Amen.